From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Alina Selyuk. Benedict XVI, the first pope in 600 years to step down, has died at the age of 95. Vengo con una notizia triste, quella che vi abbiamo già anticipato questa mattina. Coming up, we'll hear about Pope Benedict's legacy and plans for his funeral. Also this hour, the biggest political surprises of the year, and the latest from Ukraine on the eve of what's normally a much-celebrated holiday. Plus, what we can glean about the U.S. economy from the flood of gift returns and an attempt to predict the future of food trends. First, the news. It's New Year's Eve, Saturday, December 31st, 2022. Live from NPR News, I'm Jael Snyder. The Vatican is preparing for the funeral of a former pope. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI died this morning, and Vatican spokesman Matteo Bruni says he will lie in state at St. Peter's Basilica. From the morning of Monday, the body of the Pope Emeritus will be in the Basilica of St. Peter's, where the faithful can go with their prayers um, for a last meeting with the Pope Emeritus to greet him and to say goodbye. Bruni says Pope Francis will lead Benedict's funeral service on Thursday. Benedict died this morning at his Vatican residence almost 10 years after he became the first pope to step down in 600 years. Air raid sirens have been sounding across Ukraine today, and the mayor of the capital of Kiev is confirming several explosions in a telegram message. He's urging residents to take shelter. Meanwhile, the northeastern Ukrainian city of Kharkiv is known as the Missile Graveyard. It's where investigators and prosecutors are collecting all the physical evidence of thousands of strikes on the city. NPR's Tim Mack was in Kharkiv and brings us this report. The city of Kharkiv is some 25 miles from the Russian border. Since the start of the war, the local prosecutor's office says that they've gathered the physical remnants of the approximately 3,000 shells and rockets and missiles that have landed in the city. Here's office spokesman Vladislav Karpov. Karpov says emergency services clear the scene, prosecutors investigate the strike, and explosive experts bring the remaining scraps to the missile graveyard. He says many of these thousands of pieces of metal represent strikes on civilian targets and are evidence of war crimes. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kharkiv. The nation's top infectious disease expert is formally stepping down from his position at the National Institutes of Health and as President Biden's chief medical advisor today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports that Dr. Anthony Fauci has served under seven U.S. presidents and helped guide the U.S. and other countries through the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who turned 82 last week, has been a driving force in the field of infectious diseases for more than 50 years. Fauci spearheaded the nation's HIV research efforts in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. He later became a household name as a leading medical advisor for the coronavirus pandemic, first serving under former President Donald Trump and then under President Biden. In a statement, Fauci said that while he's moving on from his current positions, he's not retiring. In an interview with The New York Times, Fauci said he hopes to do some public speaking and plans to write a memoir. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The number of labor petitions filed this year in Massachusetts more than doubled compared to 2021. That's according to data from the National Labor Relations Board. WBUR's Yasmin Emmer has more. Nineteen of the union petitions filed this year were at Starbucks stores. The biggest petitions, representing thousands of graduate students, included Boston University and MIT. Darlene Lombos, who leads the Greater Boston Labor Council, says support for labor has grown. A wave of workers um, wanting to organize probably in every industry. And so it's been incredible to see after those years of COVID and the racial reckoning and how workers are really seeing that they deserve more. Lombo says trade unions are also expanding their apprenticeships thanks to federal money for infrastructure. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. An investigation's underway after a 60-year-old woman was shot on an MBTA bus in South Boston. The woman suffered a non-life-threatening gunshot wound to her abdomen. Transit police say yesterday's shooting may have been accidental. Boston police say safety is a top priority as people head out into the streets to celebrate New Year's Eve. Police Commissioner Michael Cox says there will be a large police presence at first night and in neighborhoods throughout the city. You will see all our specialized units uh, in virtually every part of our our department working to make sure that uh, it's a safe night for everyone no matter where they are. First night will feature more than 15 hours of free programs, mostly around Copley Square. A parade from Copley Square to Boston Common is scheduled to wrap up with a family-friendly fireworks show at 7 p.m. Another fireworks display in Boston is set for midnight. This afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins host the Buffalo Sabres. It's 50 degrees in Boston, highs today in the mid-50s, some rain likely mainly late in the day and expected to continue tonight. Lows in the upper 40s overnight, and then tomorrow for New Year's Day, mostly sunny and temperatures in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at FJC.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Scott Simon is off this week. I'm Alina Selyuk. Pope Benedict XVI, the first pope in 600 years to retire, has died. He was 95. The German pontiff had lived at the Vatican since his surprise retirement in 2013. NPR's Sylvia Pajoli is in Rome and she joins us now. Hi, Sylvia. Hi, Alina. Tell us what the Vatican said this morning. Well, in a very brief statement, the Vatican spokesman said, With sorrow, I inform you that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI passed away today at 934 in the Mater Ecclesia Monastery in the Vatican. And uh, he supplied some information a little bit later on the details of the funeral. Benedict was Pope for nearly eight years. What is he remembered most for? Well, his efforts to revive Christianity in a secularized Europe, which he saw as threatened by what he called the dictatorship of relativism, those efforts were overshadowed by many crises. His papacy was haunted by clerical abuse scandals and missteps that offended Jews and Muslims. And Vatican power struggles also showed that he had little control over the Holy See's bureaucracy. 
In terms of clerical sex abuse scandals, uh, they erupted all over the world under his papacy. But Benedict is credited with starting the process to discipline or defrock predator priests. It's an issue that had been more or less ignored or even played down under his predecessor, John Paul II. Benedict ordered an inquiry into the Irish Catholic Church that led to several resignations of bishops. And he disciplined Father Martial Maciel, founder of the Legionaries of Christ and one of the Catholic Church's most notorious predators. And yet just this year, an independent report in Benedict's homeland, Germany, alleged he had failed to take action in four cases when he was Archbishop of Munich from 1977 to 1982. Difficult legacy. Benedict eventually became the first pope to retire in modern times, as we've mentioned. Tell us about that. Well, it was a huge shock. And by doing so, one of the most conservative popes in recent memory charted really a radical new course for the papacy. Some scholars say it was revolutionary. In fact, his successor, Pope Francis, has uh, spoken openly of the possibility of his resignation should he feel he cannot fulfill his duties. How has the church changed since Benedict retired? Well, you know, Francis is widely seen as the other side of the pendulum swing from conservative to progressive. And, you know, in fact, willingly or not, Benedict in retirement in a monastery on Vatican grounds became a kind of rallying point for conservatives who opposed Francis's liberalizing moves in the Catholic Church. Uh, Francis has a much greater emphasis on mercy as opposed to Benedict's insistence on strict rules on morality. Sylvia, we know generally what happens when a serving pope dies. You'd mentioned we got some details on the upcoming funeral. So what happens in this case, the death of a retired pope? There are very elaborate rules for the funeral of a reigning pope, but no known ones for a former pope. The last pope to resign some 600 years ago reverted to being a cardinal, and his funeral rite was that of cardinals. The Vatican has said that Benedict's body would lie in state from Monday in St. Peter's Basilica, And the spokesman said the funeral will take place Thursday in St. Peter's Square and Pope Francis will preside. And the spokesman, Matteo Bruni, added, in accordance with the emeritus pope's desires, the funeral will be marked by simplicity. That's NPR's Silvia Pajoli in Rome. Silvia, thank you. Thank you. 2022 gave us another highly charged and surprising year in politics. Last year, COVID-19 kept us apart. This year, we're finally together again. There was no ambiguity, no nuance. Donald Trump made a purposeful choice to violate his oath of office. This election is a victory, a victory and a vindication for Democrats, our agenda, and for the American people. Just as I promised in 2016, I am your voice. I am your voice. Joining us now to talk about all of this is NPR's Ron Elving. Good morning, Ron. Good to be with you, Alina. Let's start with that last very familiar voice we just heard, former President Donald Trump. Quite a contrast between how he announced running for president last time, how he announced this time. Yes, the first time was in Trump Tower, which at the time seemed a symbol of Trump's commercial success, uh, his business success. Now he's retreated to his personal palace at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, where he is increasingly isolated and besieged. Uh, Back in 2016 or 2015, when he first declared, there was a big reaction to things that he said about immigrants. Uh, Mexico is not sending their best, Trump said. Mm. They're bringing crime and drugs. Some are rapists. 
Well, that kicked off his campaign, and it knocked our national politics off kilter for years. So this time around, not nearly as much attention to every word he said. Uh, that was our introduction in 2015 to Trump's method of blowing up the Internet and picking up the pieces. Now he's not nearly the same presence in social media. And nothing he said this time was particularly memorable. He continues to deny that he lost in 2020, and that disproven claim has already caused a world of trouble and seemed destined to continue doing so for Trump and for Republicans and for the country. At the same time, Ron, has there ever been a president who, after losing his reelection, continues to eclipse the man who beat him, at least in terms of media attention? Uh, not since the, uh, excuse me, 1820s. No, not since the 1820s, not even remotely. Uh, but there is a demonstration of how people can get whatever version of reality they prefer now just by switching channels or changing their Twitter feed. We have to say, too, that Trump just keeps doing things we have to report. Taking a trove of classified documents home that he was not entitled to take, uh, resisting all efforts to get his story told on the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So it's no wonder that that January 6th committee concluded that Trump was uniquely responsible for that attack. Uh, meanwhile, the private Trump organization has now been found to be in criminal violation of the law in New York, and state authorities are closing in on him elsewhere, too. And yet he insists he remains the rightful head of the GOP, and many in that party still seem to agree. So he's hard to ignore, no matter how delusional he seems to become. Okay, but about the Biden administration, shouldn't it have come to dominate the news by now in its second year? In the first year, this administration had a lot to deal with. Uh, the COVID devastation, the ugly withdrawal from Afghanistan, for which it was at least partially responsible, steadily falling approval ratings, and great difficulty moving big bills in Congress. But the second year trajectory has been quite different. It's been a lot more legislation than we've seen any other president get through in a single year in quite a long time, including infrastructure spending, investments in climate change, and he's had the opportunity to unite the Western world against Russia after Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that's made him look like a strong figure on the world stage, just as that botched Afghanistan withdrawal made him and the U.S. look weak. Thinking back on the year, as far as real political surprises go, the midterms seem to stand out, don't they? In any president's first midterm, his party loses seats, sometimes many seats. Now, the last two Democratic presidents, Clinton and Obama, saw their party massacred in the House. But this time, on the numbers, it just didn't happen. The Republicans picked up a handful of seats. They got to a bare majority, uh, but they don't have anything like the 20 or 30 that they expected to have to govern with. And at this point, well, the confusion just continues to grow around the speaker election. We simply don't know who the Republicans are going to elect for a speaker next week. We still think the odds are on Kevin McCarthy for lack of another candidate, but it doesn't look like he's got the votes on the first ballot. That's NPR's Ron Elving. Thank you so much and Happy New Year, Ron. And also to you, Alina. Benjamin Netanyahu is back as Israel's prime minister. The Israeli parliament ratified his coalition government on Thursday. He's appointed far-right religious ultra-nationalists to key positions of power. Israelis and Palestinians are still reacting, and the Biden administration is responding cautiously, as NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. 
After the government was sworn in, President Biden said in a brief statement, I look forward to working with Prime Minister Netanyahu, who's been my friend for decades. He said they would work together to counter threats from Iran and to promote Israel's relations in the Mideast. But he said the U.S. will continue to oppose policies that endanger the viability of forming a Palestinian state one day and that contradict the U.S. and Israel's mutual interests and values, apparently a reference to the ultra-nationalist makeup of the new coalition. The Palestinian Authority has called on countries not to deal with Israel's new leaders. Palestinian ambassador to the U.K., Hossam Zumlot, tells NPR the U.S. shares blame for Israel's politics. It was the outcome of years of international inaction of U.S. enabling the situation to fester into the populism and the dangerous individuals we see in this government. Israel's new minister of national security is far-right activist Itamar Ben-Gvir. He was convicted in Israel for supporting an anti-Arab group that both Israel and the U.S. consider a terrorist organization. The Biden administration won't say whether it will engage directly with him, just that it will judge the Israeli government on its policies, not personalities. But in Israel, many are not reserving judgment. Demonstrators blocked traffic Thursday, waving pride flags, after some incoming government ministers said businesses and doctors should be able to refuse serving LGBTQ Israelis on the grounds of religious liberty. Netanyahu insists he'll defend LGBTQ rights. Israel's president gave a speech yesterday. President Isaac Herzog told worried Israelis that their democracy is strong and that they shouldn't talk as if their country is doomed. He also said he spoke with members of the new government and demanded they show the responsibility needed at this time. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Ahead on Weekend Edition, you'll revisit a conversation with the B-52s. Today is your last chance to make a tax-deductible contribution to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. It's 50 degrees in Boston, highs in the mid-50s today. Some rain likely mainly late in the day and tonight for New Year's Eve. For New Year's Day tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Investigators are looking into the background of the suspect in custody and the murders of four University of Idaho students. The suspect was arrested in Pennsylvania yesterday, some six weeks after the students were stabbed to death. An extradition hearing is scheduled for Tuesday. A flood watch is in effect for a large portion of California where heavy rain from what's called an atmospheric river has sparked landslides that have forced road closures. Multiple feet of snow in the forecast for higher elevations. And the trailblazing television journalist Barbara Walters has died. Her former employer, ABC News, says she died late yesterday. She was 93. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Noom, a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alina Selyuk. It's a somber and frightening New Year's Eve in Kiev, marking the end of a year almost entirely under attack. Today, Russia unleashed another barrage of airstrikes on Ukraine's capital city. This follows hits to the country's critical infrastructure earlier this week. And yet, some Ukrainians are still trying to celebrate. NPR's Tim Mack joins us now from Kiev. Hi, Tim. Hey there. It's the end of the year and nearly a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine started. This far into it, where do things stand? Well, 10 months in, it's not like almost anyone expected when the war started in February. Kyiv was supposed to be controlled by Russian troops within days, and instead Kyiv is solidly within Ukrainian control. Actually, the mayor of Kyiv said in the last day that the population in Kyiv is now returning to close to its pre-war total. But that's the capital city. Fighting continues in the east and south of the country. There's fighting over towns in the eastern region of Donbass with not much value other than the land that's actually being held by either side. It seems right now that there's a stalemate at the moment. And amid that, Russia is relying on airstrikes. Dozens of rockets and missiles were fired on Ukrainian cities on Thursday. That's a larger barrage than it's been in the past. As they have been for months, the Russian military is targeting energy infrastructure, and that's been leaving millions of Ukrainians marking the new year without power and heat. The new year is supposed to be the time to look forward at what's to come. Does anyone see an end to the war? You know, this is something that people have been mentioning a lot in interviews recently. What would the end of the war even mean for them? Is that when the fighting ends or when justice is achieved for the wrongs that they believe have happened here? This week, I visited what people call the Missile Graveyard in Kharkiv. That's a city in northeast Ukraine where the Russian border is just over 20 miles away. The Missile Graveyard is a place where the local government has gathered all the remnants of missiles and rockets and shells that have fallen in the city. There's evidence there of more than 3,000 alleged strikes on that city alone. That's according to the local prosecutor. Brigadier General Serhiy Melnik is in charge of the defense of Kharkiv, and he also has a legal background. He says that right now the main priority for their investigators is to gather evidence of which commanders were in charge of strikes against the civilians of their city. The prosecutor general of Ukraine covering the entire country has opened investigations into more than 60,000 cases of alleged war crimes in the country so far. New Year's Eve in Kiev, normally a big holiday, right? Is there any kind of celebrating at all? Well, you're right. Kiev is normally a bustling, exciting city on a night like this. 
But it's important to note that martial law is still in place. And in Kyiv, the curfew is at 11 p.m. And fireworks are banned here and in places closer to the front line like Kharkiv. Now, that hasn't stopped some people from trying, though. There's this viral video that's making the rounds on social media in which a woman in Kyiv reacts to someone setting off loud fireworks in her neighborhood. So amid these loud bangs, she said she thinks she nearly had a heart attack and begins cursing at the people setting them off. It's a reflection of why fireworks are banned, because in Kyiv, loud explosions can mean death. So many people here are obviously traumatized by the events of the past year. That's NPR's Tim Mack in Kyiv. Tim, thank you. Thank you. The crisply detailed yet painterly images of the swirling phantom galaxy from the Webb Telescope, plus an asteroid knocked right off its course by humans, and a return to the moon. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, we review the year in space and look forward to what the future holds with NPR's Jeff Brumfield. We might have the first commercial spacewalk. from a SpaceX capsule, that's Elon Musk's company. And SpaceX might also launch this massive new rocket called a Starship that is maybe the sort of architecture they'll use to one day try and reach Mars. You can tune into that conversation tomorrow by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It's that time of the year again, returns season. Unwanted clothes, appliances, doodads and gadgets, all getting brought back to the store with requests for money instead. And this year is on track to be a record year for returns since we've already seen record spending. Peggy Alford is an executive vice president at PayPal, which has insight into millions of shopping transactions, including returns. And she joins us now. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. So now that we are in peak return season, with the tip of the peak happening in early January, um, returns company Uptoro forecasts that shoppers will return $135 billion worth of stuff, which is up about 12% from last year. Are our returns habits changing from what you're seeing in your data? Absolutely. They're absolutely up, as you mentioned. There are reports of nearly 50% of consumers expecting to return holiday gifts this year. And that means that one in five online purchases were returned this year. And that's up from 18% in 2021, as far as our data showed. Um, And because of what's going on in the environment, um, you know, consumers are incredibly focused on making sure that they are getting the very best deal. There is no more, I'll just buy it right away before it's gone and I'll pay full price. It's really a focus on making sure that we're getting the very best price. But businesses know this and we've seen more deal days. There's more sales in the last, in the past three to four months than we've seen in past years. There's an incredible interest in um, PayPal's shopping tools, showing that consumers are truly looking to stretch their dollars even further. Given that inflation does seem to be easing now, do you think this kind of intense deal hunting will continue next year? Inflation and rising prices will continue to be a challenge for consumers in 2023, and we expect consumers to be more aware of the financial health than in past years. So, you know, our uh, the savings tools um, 
the Ascent, which is a motley full service, conducted research that found that two thirds of Americans plan on making a financial resolution for the new year. Um, but 81% of those surveyed also believe that the current inflation is going to make it harder for them to meet their financial goals in 2023. I understand that you guys have tracked some kind of pretty specific types of purchases that people have been putting on their wish lists or, or buying over the holidays. Could you talk a little bit about them? Sure. We've seen electronics are the most watched item on consumers' drop lists. Um, the most popular items being watched for discounts are video games, consoles, personal electronics like tablets, and then wireless headphones, which my son uh, has, has loved this year. Um, we actually are seeing that products that are used when getting ready to leave the house, like hair wraps, clothing steamers, cosmetics, seem to be high up on the list, which would be new this year versus other years. And then rise in pet ownership, which we saw a lot of over the pandemic, um, is then causing the rise in pet cleaning products like pet hair removals, upholstery cleaners for those pets that really haven't figured out what to do inside the house, as well as air purifiers. Interesting. In the past few months, we saw a huge increase in this trend of people shopping with buy now, pay later paying for gifts, but also groceries, airplane tickets in installments, which I understand is a big business for PayPal. How much are you seeing inflation affect that business? I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier around just people being, you know, very concerned about their own economic situation and really trying to get the best deals. Adobe Research shows that the buy now, pay later industry generally is up 68% compared to last year. And so consumers are absolutely tightening their belts. I think people are concerned. I think uncertainty in general just causes stress for people. And because of all of the factors that are going into what our economic situation globally is going to look like next year, consumers are being extremely cautious looking for deals, looking for ways to add flexibility to the way they pay. And this is just going to absolutely continue going into next year and probably through next year. That's PayPal Executive Vice President Peggy Alford. Thank you so much for speaking with us and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Tinned fish, butterboards, and of course... And Negroni. I was going to say the same thing. Magliato. Mm. With Prosecco in it. Oh, stunning. Yeah. Those are the foods that consumed our attention in 2022. But what will 2023 look like for our stomachs? Kim Severson is a national food correspondent for the New York Times, and she's published a list of her predictions for the upcoming year. She joins us now. Welcome. Hi. Hello, hello. Before we launch into 2023, what defined this year in food? The phenomena of, of TikTok viral recipes captured us a lot. So we had silly things like people using their counters as the serving and cooking utensil, or as you mentioned, the very famous butter boards, which essentially was butter on a board. How did inflation affect what people ate? I think it makes people think about different recipes, about being a little bit more creative in the kitchen with food. Uh, certainly feeds into what we're seeing this year, which is a real celebration of thrift and frugality and not wasting in your kitchen. So what are some of these lasting changes that you are predicting for 2023? Your vibe of the year, I think, is sharing. Where does that come from? 
this year, I think people are really looking for a sense of community. It just has never been stronger. You know, we went for a long time where you couldn't reach into your friend's bag of chips or take a sip of their drink, right? I mean, understandably, in the pandemic. And now there's a sense of community coming through both from the low end, for example, uh, minis, which is a new snack from Frito-Lay. So there are tiny little Cheetos and Sun Chips in these canisters that have specifically been designed to share and pour into friends' hands. And at restaurants, there's you know appetizer towers and dessert towers and large format cocktails. Uh, and I have to say, I may make fun of butterboards and the charcuterie trend, but some of that is flowing from that, this idea of communal eating. Your list of some specific items includes the purple yam ube. I'm a huge fan. It's it's sweet, it's delicious, a staple Filipino desserts. Why do you predict a big year for ube? Ube is like a beautiful, vibrant purple. And ube is great. You can make a beautiful like sweet potato pie using ube. I think you can bake in ube. You can put it in waffle mix. So I think you're going to see a lot of ube. On the topic of bright colors, you make a prediction for one specific drink also, which I did not see coming. I will be honest with you. Jello shots. Jello shots? Yes, my friend. I don't know if you, you probably don't remember all the jello shots you had because you were doing jello shots. <laughs> I will shots. neither confirm nor deny. Right. But there's this uh, high end dive bar concept going on. Pretty accessible. Yeah. So jello shots, but done in a high end way. Certainly other cocktails that might have seemed like bar drinks are getting a bit of an elevation. So the high-end Jello shot, look for it. Speaking of Jello, I'd like to tell you a prediction of mine based okay. on nothing except for my own personal love of this food I grew up with, which I think is ready for a modern comeback. Um, it's aspic. Aspic. You know, I have to say there is a bit of a 70s nostalgia thing happening online where people are taking dishes from the 70s. And I think they sort of make fun of them. I think it's not necessarily a real eating trend. However, aspic and food in jellos, there's a there's a little bit of a heartbeat happening for that. But the high end aspic, it's really actually done well as a lovely thing. I keep waiting. I don't know if people are ready for it. You know, just for you, I'm going to really start pushing the aspic. There you go. That's Kim Severson, national food correspondent for the New York Times. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Oh, wait, can I add one more thing you may want to edit in? I do have to say my personal favorite is the rise of the crispy chicken skin. So chicken skins as a base for nachos. They're showing up as appetizers. Other parts of the chicken are expensive, so why not use the skin? And I personally am making a resolution to eat more chicken skins in 2023. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. As 2022 slides into 2023, we've got some reading recommendations from NPR's Books We Love. Today, several of our coworkers have reviews for fantasy, mystery, and sci-fi. Hi, I'm Hafsa Fatima. I'm a producer at Pop Culture Happy Hour, and I enjoy losing my mind over great science fiction. 
Nona the Ninth by Tamsin Muir is a great example of this. It's the third book in the Locked Tomb series and focuses on Nona. She has no idea who she is, can't recall her past, and she lives in a galaxy basically in the middle of a civil war. Her caregivers, Camilla and Piria, seem to know more than she does, but they just won't tell her what's going on. The book picks up after the events of Harrow the Ninth, answers some pretty important plot questions, but then it goes on to create some more new chaos. I can't say too much without spoiling it, but you can expect some necromancy, bad jokes, and plot twists. And I cannot recommend it enough. I'm Nicolette Khan, and I'm part of NPR's research, archives, and data strategy team. One of my favorite books this year was Birds of Maine by Michael DeForge. It's a graphic novel about a futuristic and very advanced lunar bird civilization. I would categorize this book as a work of speculative biology or speculative evolution, which is not a genre I was familiar with until trying to describe this book. There are fungal laneways, library orgies, and a universal worm diet, but also familiar dramas like completing manuscripts, falling in love, and bands breaking up. Everything about this book is fun. DeForge's lines and shapes are simultaneously geometric and organic, the colors are really bold, the dialogue is so wonderfully bizarre but mundane. I laughed out loud a lot and had some lively group chat conversations based on snapshots from this book. My name is Leah Danella. I'm an editor with NPR's Code Switch team. And one of my favorite books this year was The Daughter of Dr. Moreau by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. The book is a play on the H.G. Wells sci-fi classic The Island of Dr. Moreau, and it's told largely from the perspective of Moreau's daughter, Carlota, who lives with her father on a fairly isolated estate in the middle of Mexico's Yucatan. When the book begins, you find out fairly quickly that Dr. Moreau is doing experiments that combine human DNA with animal DNA from monkeys, jaguars, goats, all sorts of things. Carlota helps him with this research. Theoretically, it's supposed to be helping find cures for human ailments, including Carlota's own mysterious illness. But as the book goes on, we learn that these experiments go way further than anyone realized, and that their true purpose is far more complex and sinister than anyone, including Carlota, has been led to believe. You heard about The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, Birds of Maine, and Nona the Ninth. And if you want to see more reviews, check out our Books We Love list at npr.org slash bestbooks. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A Boston-born journalism icon has died. Barbara Walters was 93 years old. She spent the early part of her childhood in Brookline. Walters attended the Lawrence School, a Brookline public elementary school, through fifth grade. 
1976, she became the first woman hired as a network television news anchor. Walters was a fixture on shows including Today, the ABC Evening News, 2020, and The View. First Night Boston gets underway this afternoon. The New Year's celebration features a variety of performances, mostly around Copley Square, where you'll also find ice sculptures marking the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. At 6 p.m., the First Night Parade runs from Copley Square to the Boston Common, where fireworks are scheduled for 7 p.m., and a midnight fireworks display is scheduled over Boston Harbor. The region's stretch of mild weather to close out 2022 has set some records, the National Weather Service says in Worcester, yesterday's high temperature of 62 degrees was the warmest ever on that date. And in Boston, yesterday's high of 63 degrees tied the city's December 30th record. It's 50 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. WBUR is fueled by the belief that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, our communities, and our democracy. And we're fueled by the support listeners give because they want to make a meaningful difference. Now's the time to join them. I'm Lisa Mullins. Make your tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call one 800 909 9287. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alina Selyuk. Next week marks two years since the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. This month, a monumental congressional report recommends federal criminal charges against former President Trump for his role in the attack. Now, a new documentary on HBO attempts to peel back the beliefs and events that led to that day. Give me liberty or give me death! No more fraud! We need to revote in all seven swing states! I am 1,000% sure that he is going to get it again four more years. I have no doubt whatsoever. I have never doubted it for a nanosecond. That was a clip from This Place Rules by Andrew Callahan, who first became known for his YouTube series, traveling in an RV, talking to people from all corners of the country. He joins us now. Andrew, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of NPR, so I'm stoked to be on. The film is stitched with lengthy interviews with people who have deep conspiracy beliefs, including you have a convicted pedophile who accuses politicians of being pedophiles. Some of those perma protesters we have at the White House who are shouting grievances. You have a rapper cashing in on the Trump mania. How does all of that connect to the events of January 6th? Well, I started making the film just about the 2020 election. So it was to study how the country would change as a result of either Biden or Trump winning the election. And although obviously the MAGA rapper and people like the QAnon guy you're talking about are very different in terms of what their hustles are, but they're all connected in the same way that they all 
are in this really tight echo chamber that got tighter and tighter in the lead up to January 6th. And alternative news outlets like Newsmax and One American News Network and the Epoch Times really tightened in and kind of made the echo chamber so dense that they were just telling some of these people exactly what they wanted to hear. And things just ramped up to the point that almost everyone at the Capitol believed they were doing something that would save the country and win the spiritual war between good and evil and eradicate the deep state. And you paint these pretty detailed, pretty unsettling portraits of these people. What is it that you hope to show through them? I guess just show that like a lot of the foot soldiers that were manipulated by some of these media profiteers and like nihilistic moneymakers are just people who are, are more or less been brainwashed and aren't necessarily bad people, aren't necessarily full of hatred, don't necessarily want the worst for the outcome of America and human civilization. But a lot of them are just confused, lost, and the conspiracy framework provided like a, a lot of closure and explanations for them with a with like a rapidly changing world. The goal of the film was to really talk to people without a preloaded agenda, not trying to slam dunk or find the, the dumbest person there and make them feel small or catch them in a lie or a contradiction, but to actually try to apply some empathy and really talk to some of these folks and figure out why it is that they feel this way. You also did spend some time with some pretty high-profile far-right people, Alex Jones and Ricky Tario of the Proud Boys. And after these conversations, the conclusion you seem to draw, as you, I think, just now alluded to, is that their role in the events of January 6th was kind of cynical, commercial. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that the propaganda machine that builds upon stoking fear about like an imminent civil war around the corner is always built to sell ads, to sell products, to push merchandise. There's always a net profit that's going to be made during a really tumultuous time in America. You know, obviously Enrique Tario, former chairman of the Proud Boys, Alex Jones, runs Infowars. They both were running the two biggest t-shirt companies and the, the two biggest patriot merchandise empires during the Stop the Steal movement. And Enrique Tario personally told me that he doesn't actually think the election was stolen, even though the Proud Boys were some of the key instigators of the Capitol riot. So for a lot of these people, it was a cash grab, and a lot of people made a ton of money off of this. As you pursued this documentary, and even in your previous work with your YouTube show, All Gas, No Breaks, you sort of travel around the country and you seek out people living on these extremes. How is that different from this criticism that you offer for both fringe and mass media, that this idea that highlighting divisions is kind of the focus? When there is a massive divide in America, you're going to find interviews on the fringe. I think the difference what I'm talking about is punditry versus reporting. And what we tried to do is physically speak to people, actually show up and be there and ask people simple questions like, what's on your mind? How are you feeling? And letting them guide the conversation as opposed to presenting it in a very talking head style, where if you want to tune in, it's just me and a panel of four other people kind of bickering with each other to get the viewer as pissed off as possible. So I think that's the main difference. And obviously, being a journalist, no matter where you stand, whether you're on the fringe or in the mainstream, is kind of like a storm chaser job. It's not clear from the film that any of the people you actually spoke with were at the Capitol on January 6th. Did you seek any interviews with <laughs> people who, who were there? I mean, I am, I'm the only person to interview the, uh, the QAnon shaman from jail. If you go to our YouTube channel, Channel 5, I have about an hour and a half interview. But I mean, I'd venture to say that like, you know, 90% of the people I interviewed in the film were at the Capitol. So when you ask them about what happened that day, what is their 
understanding of how it how it happened. I think it was such an embarrassing moment for that crowd because so much of their mythology prior to that stood on like assisting and defending law enforcement and backing the blue on, under any circumstances because that's like the posture they took during the 2020 protest movement. It's funny, I I would interview people before the Capitol who were like, we got to storm the Capitol. And then as soon as it happened, all those same people say that it was Antifa who stormed the Capitol to make Republicans look bad. That was Andrew Callahan. His new documentary, This Place Rules, is out streaming on HBO Max. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Hell yeah, it's a dream to be on NPR. I appreciate you guys so much. Time now to dance. And we have the perfect song. If you see a faded sign at the side of the road that says 15 miles to the Love Shack. Love Shack by the B-52s. That's Fred Schneider, Kate Pearson, Cindy Wilson, and Heath Strickland. The new wave band from Athens, Georgia, has been rolling nonstop since 1977 through the good, the bad, the funky, and the weird. But the B-52s are putting on the brakes. A couple of months ago, Fred, Kate, and Cindy spoke with Scott Simon about being on the road for their farewell tour. Well, we're, the it's the tour. last tour, but it doesn't mean we're not going <laughs> to uh, do shows anymore. This, we're, we're not going to tour anymore, really. Well, we say that, but we're not going to do like an Elton John or share thing where we keep touring and say we're not. I keep calling it the share well tour because, you know, never say never, but being on the road is wearing, but playing the shows, it's great. So yeah, we'll do shows. We'll do We'll shows. do more shows, especially like oh. festivals and big outdoor Fireworks. Places, state fairs, bar <laughs> mitzvahs. Does it for the fireworks. I, you're not ruling out much. I mean, uh, well, I think what he's trying to say is uh, long tours and and being away from home for a long time is is hard. I wonder if you can bring us back a bit. I mean, a, a lot of people have wondered what was in the water of Athens, Georgia, in the mid to late seventies. Fluoride. Uh, all right, but I mean, you know, uh, B fifty two, REM. Well, well, there was we, nothing to do, so... We were the first sort of new wavy punk band, so we had to make our own fun, and we just one night had a flaming volcano at Hunan's Chinese restaurant, and we had we didn't have money for food. We had five <laughs> straws, six straws, actually, because our friend Owen Scott was with us, and we started jamming in Owen's basement after the flaming volcano, and magic was in the air. But we used to party and crash parties. Ruin parties. Oh, well, you know, it was uh, Athens that had a really great vibe. You know, you didn't need a lot of money, which is why a lot of people ended up staying, you know, when, once they uh, just Rents were like 60 bucks a month. <laughs> My rent was $15 a month. I had sort of the original Love Shack out in the country. It was that way back in the middle of a field. It well, was funky. <laughs> it didn't have a bathroom, though. We, uh, <laughs> we don't need to hear everything you understand, but that's all right. <laughs> Well, Fred Schneider. Yes. I think I Here. speak for a lot of people when I ask. Are why, you crazy? Well, maybe. All right. Why rock lobster and not rockfish? We were at a party. Well, I went to this place in Atlanta called the 2001 Disco and they had 
slides of puppies, babies, <laughs> and lobsters on a grill. And I thought, oh, wait, oh, rock, rock lobster. And that's the way I think. So yeah. I came back and uh, jammed on it. And we, we, the way we work is we jam and. They're all the inspiration. Yeah. The <laughs> but Fred was a poet. We do things differently. There's no one leader or anything like that. Everyone really shares, and you could see that on stage because we all work together. We write, the process of writing is by jamming, and then we yeah. collage things together. Kate and Cindy had never sung together before, and all of a sudden they blended like no other like butter. people. Yeah, like Fleischmann's margarine. Motion <laughs> <laughs> in the ocean. On this tour, uh, I'm told you're playing, is that you, Modine? Yes. You should tell that story, Fred. Oh. About what we used to do. Well, we used to, uh, if Ricky broke a string, I was sort of like, <laughs> All of a this sudden, is I, Ricky Wilson, your brother Cindy. Uh, I was the front man. Um, you told the I would jokes. get the audience to. Uh, it was Maureen Dean, John Dean's wife, I, and she was called Mo Dean. So I thought <laughs> that's a good name for someone from outer space. So, and so I'd have the audience go, "Is that you, Mo Dean?" And I go, "It's me, Mo Dean." go back and forth till Ricky fixed his guitar, fixed his, uh, guitar and then I just go thank you or I'd ask, say are there any questions and then I just make up questions because I couldn't hear what the audience was saying and answer them and <laughs> well, we had another um, imaginary entity and it was Bronda yeah when things would go wrong <laughs> Bronda did it oh like the imaginary friend who lost yes. his things up the imaginary yeah, yeah. Uh, nemesis yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cindy. Yes, darling. I hope you don't mind. May I ask you about your brother, Ricky? Oh, you know, yes, he's he was very special. Of course, we all miss him very dearly. And uh, it was like an atom bomb when Ricky passed, of course. And he, he died, I guess, in 1985, right? Yes, yeah. he did, you know, and uh, it was terrible. It was just well, the worst thing, you know, personally, a lot of death and destruction was going on and and it was all very new and early in the whole set of AIDS. You were even afraid to say you were gay back then a lot of times because it, the response was, you know, you get beaten up in places sometimes. Yeah. I think everybody went into a deep depression. And, uh, and eventually I sorted it out within myself that I'm going to always have Ricky and, you know, he's gonna always going to be with me. Yeah. He had a, such a unique playing style that he sort of had a, a rhythmic part on some of the lower strings, and then he'd have a melodic part on the top strings, and he was just like such a... And he would just be on fire when he played on stage. That's why he broke so many strings, because he was just dynamic. And yeah, the intense. He used the guitar. It was almost like a, a, a gun, you know? Well, it was, it was just a, like... It was complete... Uh, firing. Concentration.
it must winch a little to think that he, well, just to lose him personally and to think he didn't see so much of your success. Although I guess he has seen it, hasn't he? We conjured a lot of his spirit, I think, when we did Cosmic Thing. We thought we, that was the end kind of of our band when Ricky died, but we came back together. Keith started writing some music, and, and we started getting back together and jamming. You know, Keith was in a big depression, and the way he got through it is writing music. And we didn't know, you know, with Warner Brothers, if we were going to do another record. And then he approached us and said, well, do you want to try, you know? And so mm. we went to a studio and just uh, played around to see how it could do it. And it felt like Ricky was in the studio. It did. And it became obvious that it was a healing process for us all. Mm. And the music, making music. Making music together. Yeah. And then uh, when it started getting get radio play, you know, that was affirmation. What do you see when you look out at today's audiences? What do you notice about them? They're still dancing no matter what age they are. I mean, some people sit down, I don't know why. Um, but most people stand and dance the whole hour and 15 minutes we're on. And I noticed a lot of young people, and it seems much more lately, and I think it's because of the Internet and YouTube and all the people posting stuff, that there are all these young kids there now, and li some little kids really dancing too. But uh, it's Brad, to have a much younger audience Brad too. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. To a four-year-old. Well, well, we, we all, all did. did. <laughs> It was very cute. It was very cute. Yeah, she was tiny. I forgot kids are that tiny. <laughs> I forgot. Well, like, they're kids, really. I mean, well, I mean they that, grow. that tiny. Sometimes they grow. Fred Schneider and uh, Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson of the B-52s. I want to thank you all for being with us. And... Uh, for so much good music. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. That conversation was first broadcast on October 15th. The B-52s wrap up their farewell tour next month in where else? The place where it all started, Athens, Georgia. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alina Selyuk. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 50 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. Highs today in the mid-50s, some rain likely mainly late in the day and tonight for New Year's Eve. Tomorrow for New Year's Day, mostly sunny and highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. 
donate at gbfb.org WBUR. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Later today on This American Life, one of our producers, Karen, talks with a friend of hers from church who also was one of the most notorious burglars in the history of San Francisco. Like, at the same time. He'd drop into stores from the ceiling. Police called him Spider-Man. I can't think of a single place that I wanted to get into that I couldn't get into. Needy superheroes. That's later today. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Alina Selyuk. This hour, what a highly divided Congress means for actual governing, and a tribute to trailblazing journalist Barbara Walters. She died yesterday at the age of 93. She always had to wait to ask the fourth question because the men in charge wouldn't let her go first. But she just pushed ahead, and she always asked the smartest questions. Also, what we learned from the release of former President Trump's tax records. Plus, in the streaming era, who is still getting DVDs in the mail? And a love letter to New Orleans that honors female jazz musicians. First, the news, it's Saturday, December 31st, the last day of 2022. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Former Pope Benedict XVI has died. A Vatican spokesman announced Benedict's death this morning. He was 95. In 2013, Benedict became the first pontiff to step down since the 15th century. NPR's Silvio Pajoli reports from Rome. A theologian by training, the German-born Joseph Ratzinger served for a quarter of a century under his predecessor, John Paul II, as Catholicism's top enforcer of orthodoxy. As Pope, Benedict's efforts to revive Christianity in a secularized Europe, threatened by what he called a dictatorship of relativism, were overshadowed by many crises. His eight years as head of the Catholic Church were haunted by clerical sexual abuse scandals and missteps that offended Jews and Muslims. And Vatican power struggles during his time as Pope showed he had little control over the Holy See's bureaucracy. Benedict shocked the world with his resignation. That decision by one of the most conservative pontiffs in recent memory charted a radical new course for the papacy. Silvio Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. The Vatican says Benedict will lie in state at St. Peter's Basilica beginning on Monday and that Pope Francis will lead funeral services on Thursday. The first woman to regularly anchor a national evening news program, a television news program, has also died. Barbara Walters was 93 years old. NPR's Dwali Saikaltau has this remembrance of the longtime ABC News anchor. The Boston native won a dozen Emmy Awards over five decades in her storied career, most of them while at ABC News. On social media, the network announced her death, calling her a trailblazing television news broadcaster who shattered the glass ceiling and became a force in an industry once dominated by men. 
A new wave of Russian attacks is being reported in Ukraine. Air raid sirens went off nationwide today, and the mayor of Kiev says there have been at least 10 loud explosions over the city center and that there are what he calls ruins in three neighborhoods. Mayor Vitaly Klitschko says one person was killed. At least 11 people have been hospitalized. President Biden issuing six pardons to people involved in the justice system many years ago. Several of the pardons relate to alcohol and drug offenses, as NPR's Kerry Johnson reports. The White House is stressing that the people who received full pardons have gone on to serve their communities by volunteering and helping others. President Biden says he's committed to providing them second chances. Five of the six pardons are tied to crimes that involve marijuana, cocaine, or alcohol. Another is for Beverly Ibn Tamas, who killed her abusive husband while she was pregnant in 1976. The White House says her case became one of the first where the courts recognized battered women's syndrome. President Biden helped write the Violence Against Women Act during his time in the U.S. Senate. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Archdiocese of Boston is mourning the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. The Pope died today at the age of 95. He made history as the first Pope in almost 600 years to step down from his post. Cardinal Sean O'Malley of Boston calls him an engaged leader, thoughtful in his decisions, and always committed to the mission of the church. The late Pope appointed O'Malley as a cardinal in 2006. The Sumner Tunnel is open this weekend for holiday weekend travel. The tunnel is undergoing a restoration project that began this spring, which has closed the tunnel on most weekends. Temperatures in and around Boston set or came close to setting record highs for the date yesterday. The National Weather Service says Worcester hit 62 degrees, smashing its previous record of 56 degrees. Hartford hit 64 degrees, five degrees higher than its previous record. Boston tied its previous record of 63 degrees. All three cities set those records in 1984. New Year's Eve in Boston is marking the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party in ice. Steve Rose of Boston Ice Effects has been sculpting ice for First Night Boston for about 30 years. Rose studied up on the event's history to turn 30,000 pounds of ice into about seven themed sculptures. He says because of temperatures in the 50s, the sculptures need to be stored in dry ice until their big reveal. Obviously, uh, it's not ideal weather for the uh, sculptures to last. But that's part of the appeal. You know, they're ever-changing, and they, they won't be there for as long as if the weather were colder. Rose says the sculpture's large size means they will still be viewable. They'll just lose some of their detail. In sports at the Garden this afternoon, the Bruins take on the Buffalo Sabres. It is 51 degrees in Boston with highs in the mid-50s today. Some rain likely mainly late in the day and this evening for New Year's Eve. Then tomorrow from New Year's Day, mostly sunny and highs in the low 50s. Looking ahead to Monday, partly sunny and highs in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. Weekend edition from NPR News. Scott Simon is away this week. I'm Alina Selyuk. 
The new session of Congress begins on Tuesday, this time with Republicans controlling the House while Democrats keep control of the Senate. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now to talk about this. Good morning. Hey there. So the first vote in the House on January 3rd is to elect a new speaker. Does Kevin McCarthy have the votes to win? Right now, no. The California Republican needs 218 votes or a majority of those present and voting. Republicans are only going to have a super thin majority in the House in January. Four seats, basically. So McCarthy can't afford many defections. Right now, he has a math problem because there are at least five House Republicans who publicly say they oppose McCarthy. But things could change by Tuesday as talks continue. If things change in a way that means McCarthy does not get a majority, what happens then? It could be a big embarrassment if McCarthy doesn't win the election for speaker on the first vote. But the vote for speaker could go to a second ballot or potentially multiple ballots until McCarthy or maybe someone else ultimately gets a majority of those president voting on the House floor. The last time it took multiple ballots to elect a speaker was 100 years ago. Wow. McCarthy's allies admit it could be messy and it may take more than one vote, but they predict he will win. A group of 15 House Republicans from competitive districts sent a letter to their colleagues this week saying they won't support any alternative or any so-called consensus candidate, and they will vote as many times as needed to elect McCarthy. One thing to stress about this whole process, nothing else happens in the House of Representatives until a speaker is elected. It's the only leadership position specifically mentioned in the Constitution. Members of Congress cannot even be sworn in to start a new session of Congress without a speaker first being elected. So opening day could be very chaotic. Looking ahead, with a Republican House and a Democratic Senate, what will a divided Congress mean for President Biden's agenda? It's going to be challenging. The Republican House is already planning votes on issues like abortion and border security that are basically dead on arrival in the democratically controlled Senate. In the Senate, the big focus for Biden will be on getting nominees for key administration posts confirmed and judges for open vacancies in the federal judiciary. Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will make confirming more judicial nominees and many from diverse backgrounds a huge priority next year. What does all of this mean for the U.S. government simply functioning? I mean, a divided Congress with chambers with both really slim majorities means getting basic things done is going to be super hard. Congress did clear a spending bill that funds government agencies through September, but we could expect to see a real standoff over the next funding bill in the fall and potentially a government shutdown in October. Congress also needs to raise the nation's borrowing authority to avoid a potential default sometime probably in the spring. Republicans have already signaled they won't agree to raise the debt limit unless some major cuts are made to programs like Social Security and Medicare. That's a non-starter for Democrats. So that battle over that issue could impact financial markets and even the nation's credit rating. Biden has said he's open to working to Republicans, but it's hard to see many areas where they agree. The president is going to spend a majority of his time defending his signature bills from Republican efforts to roll them back or defund them. The administration is also going to face scores of investigations on things like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, border security, and Biden's son Hunter's business dealings. Another intense year ahead of us. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
2022 saw the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the historic Supreme Court decision that had guaranteed the right to abortion in the U.S. for nearly 50 years. NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon covers abortion rights policy, and she has this look back on a history-making year. The year began with high hopes for the anti-abortion rights movement. We are hoping and praying that this year, 2022, will bring a historic change for life. In January, March for Life President Jeannie Mancini told activists gathering on the National Mall for their annual rally that she was full of anticipation as the Supreme Court prepared to release its decision in a major abortion case. The court's conservative majority was more powerful than ever, with three justices appointed by former President Trump. Mancini told marchers from around the country that soon the fight would become much more local. If Roe falls, the battle lines will change. But make no mistake, the fight for life will need to continue in the states and here in D.C. Meanwhile, in Texas, the reality of what a post-Roe America could look like was already coming into view. Most abortions had become illegal after the U.S. Supreme Court allowed a state law called SB8 to take effect a few months earlier, banning most abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. In a novel legal strategy designed to get around existing precedent, SB8 empowered individuals to sue abortion providers and others believed to be involved in illegal abortions. The law meant some patients like Anna, a woman from central Texas who suffered a miscarriage in 2021, were denied emergency terminations. They couldn't even say the word abortion. Like, I could see the fear in these doctors' eyes that they were just so scared to even talk about it. In an interview with NPR a few months later, Anna, who asked us not to use her last name for fear of potential legal repercussions for her doctor, said her water broke at 19 weeks, just under halfway through the pregnancy. She and her husband went to an emergency room where doctors told her there was no chance the baby could survive and that continuing the pregnancy could put her at risk. You're at a high chance of going septic or bleeding out. And unfortunately, we recommend termination, but we cannot provide you one here in Texas because of this law. Anna became one of the first patients facing an abortion ban, but certainly not the last, to get on a plane and travel to another state while in the midst of a medical crisis. I had to come up with a game plan with my OB in case I went into labor on the flight. And I made sure that I bought us front row seats so I could be close to the bathroom in case it happened. And uh, like no one should ever have to do that. Then in late June, the U.S. Supreme Court released the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision, sending the status of abortion law into chaos around the country. Some clinics had to shut down with patients still in the waiting room in states with laws designed to quickly ban abortion after the fall of Roe. Reproductive rights lawyers fought back, challenging some of those laws in state courts. In Louisiana, just days after the Dobbs decision, they won a brief reprieve. At the Hope Medical Group for Women in Shreveport, staff members scrambled to keep up with calls from confused and anxious patients. We're back to being able to schedule. What, did you have an appointment with us or what? You mean for your first visit? Okay, well, we're not scheduling for first visits right now, honey. We're already booked up. So, um, well, I understand the whole thing isn't fair. 
One patient who managed to get an appointment there was a 27-year-old woman from Texas. She asked us to call her by the letter J rather than her full name for fear of stigma back home. Jay told me she was struggling as a stay-at-home mom to three young children. And after serious medical complications in previous pregnancies, she was devastated to find out she was pregnant again. I was really scared. I thought I was going to have to travel 12 hours to Albuquerque because of Roe v. Wade being overturned. I had a panic attack that day. That same week in Indiana, Dr. Caitlin Bernard was taking care of a 10-year-old who'd become pregnant as a result of rape. The girl had traveled from neighboring Ohio after a near-total abortion ban, with no exceptions for rape or incest, took effect there. In an interview with NPR in late July, Dr. Bernard said she was worried about the impact of abortion bans on patients facing a variety of complex pregnancy decisions in an increasingly confusing legal environment. When you take away someone's right to privacy about their medical decisions, the challenges that they face to access life-saving health care is going to be enormous. After prominent conservatives questioned Bernard's credibility without providing evidence, the story became a symbol of the fight over abortion access that had been triggered by the Dobbs decision. The state of Indiana eventually produced documents supporting Bernard's version of events. Many anti-abortion rights activists continued to oppose rape exceptions, insisting abortion is always wrong. Pam Whitehead, who lives in Texas and leads the anti-abortion group Pro-Love Ministries, says her views were shaped partly by her own experiences. I can't imagine being in that situation. I know what it's like to be raped, though. I also know what it's like to have an abortion. And I'll tell you this, that that abortion impacted me greatly. Around the country, clinics in states where abortion remains legal have been coping with an influx of patients by the thousands, determined to get abortions even if they have to travel out of state. Abortion funds and logistical support networks have stepped in to help with the costs of travel and other needs. Laquetta Cooper, with Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and southwest Missouri, says the influx to Illinois was even bigger than expected. Her affiliate recently announced the launch of a mobile abortion unit that can travel throughout southern Illinois, offering abortion pills and eventually procedures closer to patients in states like Missouri where abortion is unavailable. The biggest needs that we are seeing is the fact that they have to travel so far to get the care that they need. This will be helpful so that they don't have to travel three to five hours trying to get the abortion care that they need. Anti-abortion rights groups are taking notice, working to tighten regulations on pills, and looking for ways to make it harder for providers to serve patients across state lines. Just months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe, voters had a chance to weigh in. Nationwide, voters in the 2022 midterms listed abortion rights among their top concerns in exit polls. And in several states where the issue was on the ballot, including red states like Kansas and Kentucky, voters signaled support for abortion rights. Already, abortion rights groups say they're looking ahead to future elections, hoping to put the question directly to voters in more states. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody, and thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's 918, and ahead on Weekend Edition, you'll consider Donald Trump's taxes. You'll get memories of Barbara Walters. Also, New Orleans-based singer Judith Owen discusses her newest album.
Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app whenever, wherever. It's 51 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. An extradition hearing is set for Tuesday for the suspect arrested in Pennsylvania in the fatal stabbings of four University of Idaho students. The suspect is a grad student at Washington State University. He's facing four counts of first-degree murder and burglary in Idaho. It's now been just over a week since that deadly blizzard began hitting western New York, stranding people in their homes and cars and leading to the deaths of at least 40 people. And the first Mega Millions drawing of the new year will have a big top prize. The jackpot for Tuesday night's drawing increased to $785 million after no ticket matched all six numbers drawn last night. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alina Selyuk. Unlike every president since Richard Nixon, Donald Trump refused to release his taxes. So a congressional committee did it for him almost two years after he left office. The Democratic-led House Ways and Means Committee took this unusual step Friday after a years-long fight to obtain the records. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro has waded through hundreds of pages of lines and numbers and joins us now. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, Alina. Let's get right into it. We've been waiting for these returns for years. What do they show? Well, the tax returns are from six years, 2015 to 2020, Trump's last year in office. They're lengthy and complicated, but some of what they show is that since Trump declared for president in 2015, he's claimed millions of dollars in losses for his businesses, years of negative personal income, and he paid little or no taxes in multiple years. Uh, This is someone who ran on being a successful businessman, and yet his businesses from his Turnberry Golf Course in Scotland to his now-sold hotel in Washington, D.C according to these records, appeared to have sustained some significant losses. Uh, The returns uh, raise lots of questions as well about the details of the losses because the higher the claimed losses, the more it reduces his tax liability. For instance, he claimed a $21 million deduction involving a New York property and whether it was overvalued. Of course, recently his company, the Trump Organization, was convicted of decades of tax fraud and schemes. Why did the committee want these records in the first place? 
Well, the committee has oversight over the IRS, and it wanted to see if the agency had complied with mandatory presidential audits. Trump had fought the release but lost at the Supreme Court. And what the committee found was that the IRS had not done audits in each of Trump's years as president. In fact, it only even started on one. The IRS said these tax returns are so complicated, it didn't have the resources to evaluate and investigate Trump's finances, which in and of itself is a pretty stunning thing. But there have been decades of, of the IRS being underfunded and not having the resources to conduct the audits necessary. It's something Democrats have really tried to fix. Republicans have fought against it, claiming that the IRS would target conservatives. Just to show how complicated Trump's taxes are compared to other presidents, the Wall Street Journal noted that after one audit, the Bidens were owed more money from the government, and in another year, they owed an additional $13. So not even in the same ballpark. Right. So we've learned a lot from these documents. Why did the committee release them now? I imagine there's been quite a bit of pushback from Republicans. Yeah, well, this Congress is coming to an end and Republicans are set to take control very shortly. Uh, they're definitely not happy. You know, the former president, you can imagine not happy in particular. He warned that it's a two-way street and also defended himself saying that his deductions were part of an incentive to create jobs. Kevin Brady is the ranking Republican member of the committee, said that Democrats Democrats unleashed a, quote, dangerous political weapon that reaches beyond the former president and could have implications for average people's privacy protections. Democrats, on the other hand, say that this was done in the public's interest. Don Beyer of Virginia was one of the committee's members and said, for example, Trump used questionable or poorly substantiated deductions and a number of other tax avoidance schemes, he said, which people can now see evidence of. And Bayer added that the returns show how tax laws are inequitable, benefiting the wealthy, and that enforcement just is not just. That's NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. And now it's time for sports. It's the biggest Saturday in college football. Skier Michaela Schifrin makes a remarkable comeback, and we remember soccer legend Pelé. And NPR's Tom Goldman joins us now to talk about all of this. Good morning, Tom. Hi, Alina. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Let's talk about Pelé, the iconic Brazilian football <clears throat> player. Died on Thursday from cancer. He was 82. Arguably the best player of all time. What made him so great, Tom? Prodigious scoring ability with his feet and his head, uh, an artful passer of the ball. Some of the descriptions of his play that stand out, he was only 5'8", but he had the strength and balance as defenders were hanging all over him. His explosive speed, creativity, dribbling skills, all the while maintaining this awareness of where everyone was on the pitch. Alina, sounds a lot like another little explosive creative player we were just talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me, Argentina's Lionel Messi during the last World Cup. <clears throat> many call me. many many will call Pelé the best ever, and and it is now an argument that seems not as easy to settle because of what you're saying. Lionel Messi just won that wor World Cup, which I think was the only trophy he was missing, right? Yeah, and and as promised a couple of weeks ago, my apologies to Messi for doubting his and Argentina's chances against France in the final. I took France in the final. I have learned it. my lesson. I can't but it. you know, the best ever argument is very subjective, impossible to say definitively. I think 
we ultimately have to be okay with saying Pelé was amazing, Maradona was amazing, Messi is amazing, Kylian Mbappe too of France is still is amazing. He's still only 24 and someone who could very well be relevant for another three World Cups. So I think if it's okay, we have to be okay with saying all these players were great in their own way. It's a, it's a long list of greats. Okay, <laughs> let's switch over to American football now. The college football playoffs, TCU versus Michigan, Ohio State versus Georgia, both semifinal games will be played later today. What are you watching for, Tom? Well, they're interesting matchups. TCU, Texas Christian, the non-blue blood in this quartet. It's finally getting the shot it believes it deserved nine years ago in the first college football playoff when it was left out at the last minute. It has a tough matchup today against undefeated and favored Michigan. Michigan made it to the last uh, last year's uh, college football playoff and lost to Georgia. And Georgia is back. Georgia is the behemoth of this group. After winning uh, last season's title, it lost a record 15 players to the NFL draft, but Georgia reloaded and now has a good shot to be the first back-to-back -back champion in the nine-year history of the college football playoff. Georgia has a great defense. Again, it will be tested today, though, by a top-notch Ohio State offense, which averaged nearly 45 points a game this season. Finally, what a year for skier Michaela Schifrin. It did not start off on the right track, but closes it. She's closing it in style. What do you make of that comeback, Tom? Yeah, if, if you can remember all the way back to February of this year at the Beijing Olympics, um, Michaela Schifrin, the great American alpine skier, had a memorable flame out. She was supposed to win multiple medals. She ended up crashing out not even finishing several races, but you know, she dealt with the disappointment on a world stage with humor and grace. And perhaps she's being rewarded now at the end of 2022. She has won four straight races. This week she won her 50th career slalom race. She's the first Alpine racer, man or woman, to win 50 in one discipline. And it was her 80th overall World Cup win, putting her just two behind the record for women skiers held by fellow American Lindsey Vaughn, only six behind the all-time record of 86 held by Swedish legend Ingemar Stenmark. So Michaela Schifrin is ending 2022 on a great high note. It's nice to see. That's NPR's Tom Goldman. Thank you. Happy New Year again. You're welcome. One of the most famous American broadcast journalists has died at the age of 93. Barbara Walters was a celebrity as much as anyone she ever covered. She interviewed world leaders and other newsmakers as well. NPR's David Folkenflik offers this tribute to an unexpected pathbreaker. If you remember Barbara Walters as a journalist who blurred the lines between news and entertainment, yeah, there's some truth to that. Those lips, those eyes, that body. When Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie met on the set of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, it set off Hollywood's hottest romance. Or take this Thanksgiving special with President and Michelle Obama. You love him very much, don't you? I do. She's a little biased. Yet, over the decades, Walters posed plenty of tougher questions. She had the only joint interview of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin amid their peace talks, and the first big interview with Monica Lewinsky, here, she asked Syria's Bashar al-Assad about brutal reprisals against protesters. You have seen, I'm certain, the pictures of Egypt's former president Mubarak in jail, uh, pictures of uh, 
uh, in Libya of uh, Muammar Gaddafi are killed. Are you afraid that you might be next? No, I'm afraid that the people won't support me, Syrian people. Do you feel now that you still have the support of your people? Barbara Walters was born on September 25, 1929, just a month before the Wall Street crash that kicked off the Great Depression. And she later said that throughout her life, she was driven by fear of financial collapse. Walters' parents held her out of many social settings to stay with her older sister, Jackie, who had a mental disability. Walters said she learned patience and empathy from Jackie, traits that proved handy. Walters' father ran nightclubs and was often absent, as she told NPR's Steve Inskeep in 2008. You know, there was such a dichotomy because on the one hand, here was this glamorous life of nightclubs and gorgeous showgirls and big stars, Frank Sinatra and Milton Berle. And, and I'm sure it's a life that people would look at and envy and think, oh, wasn't that terrific? I didn't want that. I wanted a normal life. I wanted a daddy who was home. Her father's livelihood eroded as television ascended. But after graduating from Sarah Lawrence College, Walters joined TV as a writer and producer. At NBC's Today Show, she contributed occasional on-air features as well, then developed into a hit as she expanded her role there. In 1974, she became the show's first female co-host. Her friend Andrea Mitchell of NBC News says she was inspired as a teen by seeing a woman alongside the men of the Today Show. She always had to wait to ask the fourth question because the men in charge wouldn't let her go first. But she just pushed ahead and she always asked the smartest questions. In 1977, Walters left for ABC to become the first female evening news anchor and was spoofed by the late Gilda Radner on Saturday Night Live. Uh, this is my last moment on NBC. I want to remind you to look for me along with Harry Wiesner weeknights at 7 o'clock. That impression was the price of success. She was the first million-dollar-a-year network anchor, and her ABC co-anchor, Harry Reasoner could not have been less gracious. First of all, I don't think he wanted anybody to be a co-anchor with him. He wanted it all to himself. And uh, I think the idea of a woman, uh, and particularly a woman who had done not only news, but also done uh, fashion and other sort of so-called back then women's issues, I think he found deeply offensive to him. That's David Weston, later Walters's boss as president of ABC News. The pairing with Reasoner was quickly canceled, but Walters fought her way back, moderating two presidential debates, yet displaying her instinct for showbiz, interviewing celebrities as well as world leaders, and eventually devising a yearly Oscar interview program, specials on the year's most fascinating people, and the daytime chat fest, The View. She loved not only making substantive serious news, but she also loved the lighter side as well. I mean, they, they reflected her interests and her appetites. And she also, uh, I think, really stood in for a lot of the audience uh, and knew that people were interested in these things. And she never felt that she should look down on them for that. In private, Walters's life also revolved around celebrity. She was married four times to three men, had a rocky five-year affair with then-Senator Edward Brooke of Massachusetts, and dated other prominent figures, too. But none of the relationships stuck. Walters focused on her career, a foot in entertainment and news, and faced criticism for her style. Unfounded, she felt. After being widely mocked for asking Catherine Hepburn what kind of tree she would want to be, Walters defended herself by noting it was Hepburn who made the comparison. Walters simply asked, what kind of tree? And Walters' competitiveness could not be underestimated. NBC's Andrea Mitchell was in Havana for a planned interview with Fidel Castro. A network jet was on the way with a full crew when the Cubans canceled it because Walters had decided she would have one and insisted hers be exclusive. 
Walter's fame was that powerful. And it was humiliating in the extreme, but this was just the course of doing business for Barbara. It never would have occurred to her that it had any impact on our friendship. At the time of her death, they were still friends. Over more than half a century, this driven celebrity journalist not only staved off financial disaster, but built one of the most remarkable careers in TV news. Barbara Walters is survived by her daughter, Jackie, named for her older sister. David Folkenflick, NPR News, New York. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tonight, lots of people will skip the parties and instead curl up with a good movie on any one of a number of streaming services, maybe even falling asleep before the credits roll and long before the countdown to 2023. Scott Horsley may be among them because this year he finally joined the streaming revolution after dropping his old-fashioned DVD-by-mail service. We thought this was a good chance to check in on the streaming landscape. Scott is, of course, NPR's chief economics correspondent. He joins us now. Hi, Scott. Good morning, Leah. Scott, what took you so long? As you know, I am not exactly an early adopter. I still have rabbit ears on my TV set. uh, And I didn't even have home internet until the pandemic struck. And I did already have the original Netflix service, you know, the old school kind where you get the DVDs in the mail. The DVDs in the mail, I suspect a lot of people listening have no idea that's still a thing. I confess I thought I might be the last Stone Age subscriber, but it turns out there are about a million and a half of us. Uh, It is a dwindling tribe, though, and the service could be phased out altogether before too long. So a few weeks ago, I bit the bullet and watched my last Netflix DVD. What a meaningful milestone. What was it? (laughs) It was Coco, the animated Day of the Dead movie from Disney Pixar. Remember me. kind of a perfect last DVD. (laughs) Well, it sent me down my own memory lane, back to when getting a red envelope from Netflix was its own form of cutting-edge entertainment. Uh, I actually made a reporting trip to a Netflix mail center in California back in 2005 at a time when the company was shipping out some 7 million DVDs every week. Wow. So this is going to Long Beach. This is going to Mojave. It was kind of a cross between Silicon Valley algorithms and Sears and Robux mail order operation. (laughs) Of course, that's long since been eclipsed by the streaming service, which has about 50 times as many subscribers in the U.S. And actually now Netflix also faces a huge amount of competition in the streaming business, right? Absolutely. You know, people are watching more streaming video now than they are cable or broadcast television. But industry analyst Brett Sappington says making money in streaming today is not easy. The challenge is that at $7 a month, $10 a month, even $15 a month, it's difficult to make $100 million movies and to be able to be profitable. So the gold rush mentality of recent years is giving way to newfound caution. And as a result, you're seeing cost cutting, layoffs and fewer new programs being ordered. At the same time, honestly, as a viewer, it still can feel a bit overwhelming with way too many streaming options to choose from. 
That's right. And no one-stop shop where you can turn to. Exactly. To get everything you want, you might have to subscribe to three, four, five different services. And Sappington says some viewers are hitting a saturation point. They may keep a service for a movie or for a particular series when it comes out, and then they have to make a decision, do I keep this or do I move on to a different service? Eventually, analysts think there's going to be a shakeout, and some of these services will disappear, just like mail-order DVDs. But, you know, Alina, keep in mind, that's nothing new in this industry. There's actually a comedy TV show right now set in what's supposed to be the last blockbuster video store. You can stream it on Netflix. Uh, the blockbuster nostalgia. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks, Scott, for being here, and welcome to the future, back to the future. <laughs> One of those things. You're welcome. Remember me, though I have to say goodbye, remember me, don't let it make you cry, for even if I'm far away, I hold you in my heart. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. First Night Boston gets underway this afternoon. The ice sculptures and most of the performances are in locations around Copley Square. All performances are free. Indoor events may have some capacity limits. The parade is set for 6 p.m. on a route from Copley Square to Boston Common. That's followed by fireworks over the Common. And to mark the new year, another fireworks display is scheduled for midnight over Boston Harbor. All MBTA options are fare-free after 8 this evening, and the tea will offer service later than usual, with the last subways leaving downtown after 2 a.m. However, keep in mind that problems on the T's Orange Line have led the T to run fewer Orange Line trains, and so you can expect delays. The Sumner Tunnel in Boston is open this weekend for holiday travel. The tunnel's undergoing a restoration project, and that has closed the tunnel on most weekends. In sports this afternoon, at the Garden, the Bruins take on the Buffalo Sabres. It's 51 degrees in Boston with highs today in the mid-50s. Some rain likely mainly late in the day and into tonight for New Year's Eve. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving a modest contribution that creates journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of stock. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alina Selyuk. New Year's Eve can be a time to get cozy, slip into something more comfortable. And how about a little music to set the mood? Put on your bright red tie, slick back your hair, 
Then knock on my door and we'll go from there. That's Welsh singer-songwriter Judith Owen honoring a generation of female jazz musicians on her new album, Come On and Get It. Come on and get it, honey, while the getting's good, good. Judith Owen has made her home in New Orleans for many years, and she assembled some of the city's top talent into the big band that backs her on the album. She joins us now. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I loved hearing that for New Year's Eve. How exciting. (laughs) Great plans, right? (laughs) Yeah. This is an album of jazz classics. I understand you grew up with these songs near London. What did you make of them? I was born to a very unusual pair of Welsh parents. My father was a very successful opera singer at Covent Garden who had this undying love of jazz and blues and he had a collection of 45s of these women, Nellie Lutcher, Julia Lee, Peggy Lee. And in amidst all of that classical music, I suddenly thought, this is what it sounds like to be a joyful, fabulous, unapologetic killer woman at the piano. Compared to a lot of today's hits, we think of the classic jazz songs as kind of tame, yeah. but there are a lot of adult innuendo. Do oh, you yeah. feel like that's a lost art that you try to sort of tap into? I do. I think Brits love double entendre and innuendo anyway. I mean, we just love it. But there's a, a certain fabulous, mischievous, wicked joy that comes with it. This is music to let go to. And, and there's no doubt that the reason that I made this record in New Orleans is because it's not only the birthplace of jazz, but it is a place where burlesque meets the grease, meets the sexuality. It bubbles up from the street. There's nowhere else like it. And you can hear it in the musicians. You can hear it in the recording. Is there a song that particularly represents that on the album? Oh, yeah. I think the Spanish song. I didn't like it the first time I had it on a day Although the first was the worst time Right now I think it's great it really gets it. I, as a kid, I didn't, of course, know what any of these songs meant. When I started to grow, I, I thought it was all about sex, but it turns out the Spanish song really is about marijuana, and it, it just has the most wonderful line. It. I didn't like it the first time, but oh, how it grew on me. So as you were mentioning, you are tapping into these songs that were originally sung by other artists. Let's listen to Satchel Mouth Baby, which was written and originally sung by Mary Lou Williams in the 1940s. Satchel Mouth Baby We could have a lot of fun A lot of fun Because you are You are the cutest one You're so neat Sweet Walking down the street All the ladies holler They all holler You are the cutest one How much are you trying to make these songs Judith Owen songs or (laughs) trying to pay tribute to the original artists? Really, it's 50-50 because I want to honor these women. You know, the the person that got the huge hit with that song uh, was Nat King Cole. Um, But, you know, Mary Lou Williams, what what a consummate woman, uh, arranger, conductor, mentor to Dizzy Gillespie and Miles and Charlie Parker, extraordinary woman. And so I wanted to keep them very much akin to the original songs. You know, these women were leading with their musical abilities. They were consummate performers and entertainers, but they also led with their humor and their joy. They were joyful at a time when life was hard and brutal and difficult. 
But of course, it's my sensibility. It's my humor. It's my sound. It's my voice. But I must honor these women and their songs. I know many people will hear that song and wonder, what is a satchel mouth? <laughs> um, can you enlighten us? I certainly can. It is basically somebody with big cheeks, a big, beautiful, lush mouth, like a big, joyful, like angel of a person with this lush face. And that's what a lot of these songs are about, is this incredibly outspoken, brave um, sexual attitude where it's like, you are good looking and I am looking at you and I am telling you you are good looking. And I'm going I mean, to write I, a song about it. You're so going to know what it means and all the ladies are going to just enjoy this so much and how incredible that I get to you know do these live shows which I, I, I did at the end of this past year that's, that's just we're waving goodbye to and the average age of the audience was 25 we found out and they were loving it and we unfortunately can't quite capture that experience you're describing of you actually performing live. You gave us a little bit of a taste of what that includes. What What is it like to see you perform as, I understand you, you call yourself Lady J? Oh, absolutely. I think she's a cross between Dietrich, um, Catherine Hepburn and Rita Hayworth. I mean, flaming red hair, red lips, men's suits, um, always men's suits, high heels, white shirt, tie, very androgynous, but so sexy. I wish I was her all the time. You've mentioned that you could only have recorded this album in New Orleans. I think you've yeah. described it as a love letter to the city. Yeah. Your accent does give away that you've not always <laughs> lived there. <laughs> but you've interlaced the sensibilities of the city within your album. You can hear the signature brass horns in a few yeah. songs, including Why Don't You Do Right? What did you want to capture about the city, and is it the city of the past or the city that it is now? I think it's both things, in all honesty, because New Orleans is not a museum. You know, that's what's so great about it. It's not Vegas, it's not Disney, it never will be. Um, it's, it's too um, flawed, and I say that with love. It's old and chipped and damaged. She's an old lady. And there will always be brass instruments handed from parent to child to parent to child. There will always be piano players in this city because in the world of guitars in New Orleans, piano is king. That's another reason why I was so drawn to it. And people play music here because they must. What's your plan for New Year's Eve? <gasps> well, <laughs> I wish you were here. What happens on New Year's Eve is I get a, a whole rabble of lovely people, usually with a couple of piano players and a couple of musicians thrown in so we can have a bit of a session. We all climb to the top of my house and from which we get out on the balcony, an old, beautiful lady, in, in, she is in the French Quarter, and we can look over the Mississippi River and see the fireworks at midnight. That's Judith Owen. Her new album is called Come On and Get It. Thanks so much for being with us and Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you. Come on down. Thank you. From inflation to the war in Ukraine to the World Cup, 2022 was a year filled with big headlines. 
So we wanted to take a look back at some of the stories that meant a lot to some of our staff and that they thought were most important. My name is Fernando Narro, and I'm an assistant producer and editor. Last summer marked the 10th anniversary of DACA, the program that President Obama put in place to keep many young undocumented immigrants from deportation, like Reina Montoya in Arizona. I was able to get healthcare for the first time. I had the opportunity to go back to school and get my master's in secondary education and became a classroom teacher. So I taught high school for two years. I bought my home for the first time in the summer of 2016. Being a DACA recipient helped her create a new life in this country, but the uncertainty of living under such a temporary program is hard to shoulder. We are real people and you constantly have this, uh, this sense of anxiety and stress at the back of your mind about how long will this last. Want to know a secret? Our Weekend Edition Sunday host, Aisha Roscoe, and I both love horror. Ghosts, jump scares, spooky season, all of it. What is this? It's kind of a club. You guys sneak into the library every night and... Make ghosts. Tell stories. Make ghosts sounds better. <laughs> That was a clip from director Mike Flanagan's Netflix series, The Midnight Club. And I'm Heba Ahmed, a producer here on the team. And something Mike Flanagan said has stayed with me. For a show focused on death, you know, regardless of what any of us think happens after we die, the one thing no one can argue with is that we all become stories. And so kind of being the author of your own story in life becomes very important to these kids because they have so little time left. We hear from celebrities and politicians, but it's the stories of regular people that bring the magic to Weekend Edition. I'm Andrew Craig, an assistant producer. I wanted to show how people navigate uncertainty and hardship. So I told the story of my grandfather, who became sick with a severe case of COVID-19. It left him disabled and dependent on others for survival, forcing my family to confront a painful history. I remember my mother expressed she was not happy with the way that I had lived my life, that I had turned out to be gay. He wanted to create a hopeful future grounded in truth. It's not common that you find, especially with black gay males, that two men can come together and be in each other's lives for two decades and still be attached. It's a struggle. It's all ways evolving. At this point, it is what it is. We love one another. I think that we need to just be who we are. My name is Dee Parvaz. I was born in Iran, and this year, my home country was rocked by protests. Severe surveillance makes it hard to contact people in Iran, but as an editor for the show, I managed to reach a few Iranians who told us why they took to the streets. F says a girl who is two or three years old now should be able to choose whether to wear a hijab by the time she's in school. The 1979 Islamic Revolution was years in the making, and changes to the Islamic Republic will also take time. Toppling the regime isn't necessarily the goal for all protesters. And, says M, any easing of restrictions would be welcome by Iranians. If we get to a place where we get more freedom for women, if we get to a place where we get 
other civil freedoms. That's amazing. I'm Melissa Gray, senior producer, and here's a tip for the new year. If you're a new bride and your rich husband is being oh so evasive as he whisks you away to his sprawling yet creepy estate outside of Mexico City, you have to keep asking about his first wife and what happened to her. That was my big takeaway from Aisha Roscoe's interview with the delightful Isabel Cañas about her debut book, The Hacienda. Another takeaway, that putting your five-year-old in time out might one day lead to an engrossing horror novel. I knew there was something in this house, particularly in the basement, oh, wow. that just felt watchful and felt uncomfortable. And so uh, when I misbehaved, I got sent to the timeout corner, which was at the bottom of the basement stairs. I had ample time to really meditate on what the hell was going on in there. In the past couple of years, many of the stories and interviews you've heard were done remotely because of the pandemic. But things eased up in 2022, and one of our in-person interviews was with the band Wilco. Love my country like a little boy. I'm Michael Radcliffe, assistant producer on the show, and Weekend Edition Saturday host Scott Simon and I visited the band in their studio. And since it was in Chicago, Scott felt right at home. He got the band's frontman, Jeff Tweedy, to tell us about the similarities between recording music as a band and how our country moves forward together. In the style of recording in particular that we used on this record, where everybody's playing all at once, bleeding into each other's lives in a way that we can't control, with the idea of all band members playing all at once with the goal of getting something that you can put out and share as a record, you either all get there at the same time or you don't get there at all. You have to trust that we're all going to make it. <laughs> yeah, Wait, my God, that's beautiful. But you're gonna have to learn. I'm Hadil Al-Shalchi, an editor on the team. One of the most moving stories I worked on aired in March, shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine. It featured the voices of Ukrainian artists who were still finding ways to make art during the war. For example, one artist would sketch on wallpaper and make pink paint using boiled beets. And she had a message of hope that all of us can take into the new year. Despite all of the disaster and horrors and bloody losses that our country is experiencing at the moment, there is still... Uh, a baby <laughs> being born in the bomb shelter. There is still a woman that is uh, feeding her uh, entire family with the meals she used to cook before everything had happened, and she continues doing that. Like, there are still miracles happening, and I guess we somehow have to find ways to bring our attention to those tiny sunlights. Those are just some of the stories we brought you this year. Our staff also includes Samantha Balaban, Martin Patience, Sarah Lucy Oliver, Evie Stone, Danny Hensel, Shannon Rhodes, Gabriel Donatov, Ed McNulty, Carly Rubin, Allison Mullenkamp, Ava Norgrove, Tilda Wilson, Matthew Sherman, Ashley Lucinby. 
And a huge thank you to our tireless engineers and to BJ Lederman, who writes our theme music. This is Weekend Edition. Scott Simon returns next week. I'm Alina Selyuk. Thank you for listening and Happy New Year. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program based in psychology for helping people change their habits and conquer their goals. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at WTGrantFoundation.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. Coming to WBUR City Space, January 25th, journalist and historian Dart Adams discusses his book, Instead We Became Evil, about the life of Danish rapper Sliman. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Be swept away with Beethoven and Mozart like never before, January 6th and 8th at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handelandhaydn.org. On this week's On the Media, the hazy, crazy publishing biz, where what's up is now down and what's down is now up. Everyone was braced for the collapse of the book retail ecosystem. Instead, what we saw was an incredible boom. Antitrust lawsuits, supply chain nightmares. And is paper the new vinyl? On the next On the Media from WNYC. Today at 1 on WBUR. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.